You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I am back today with what will probably be our penultimate scheme theme episode of the summer. I hate saying that because I really do love doing these episodes, but we just don't have that much time before the season starts, to be honest with you. So with the transfer of Eric Gilbert, I've got two scheme theme episodes that I want to do, detailing the different ways that he can impact our offense this season. And then that's probably going to be a wrap for the Scheme Team episodes, at least for this year. Never say never. I might be able to sneak another one or two. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll be able to sneak one in sometime over the summer leading into the season. And and, and we might do a Scheme Team mailbag. That might be what I end up doing to get to all the Scheme-related questions that you guys sent in that we have not had a chance to get to yet. But again, the fact is, it's crazy, guys. It's hard to believe, but it's almost here. It's getting here. The 22-1 season is sneaking up on us, and we've got we just got so much Georgia-specific content to cover. I mean, I've got I've literally got every episode scheduled out all the way up to the first week of the season. Of course, all of that's subject to change based off what news comes out and what headlines are out there. But right now, I really do. I have it scheduled all the way through week one. We're ready to go. And we got a bunch of things coming your way, some great things, I think, coming your way over the next couple of weeks. We've got our annual Summer Scouting the Enemy series where we bring you in-depth previews of each of our Power 5 opponents for the upcoming season. That's always a listener favorite. I think we've done that, if I remember correctly. I mean, I'm getting old, so I don't remember all these things, but I'm pretty sure we've done that since the very first season that we started this podcast, what, six or seven years ago now. It's always been a listener favorite, and we've got that kicking off next week. I've been hard at work on that for about a month and a half now, so I'm, I'm excited to finally get that out to you guys and roll that out. We've got win totals to dissect, which we always do each offseason, each summer, because we just love talking college football. We love doing that. It's fun. It's another sign that college football is closer to getting here, so we'll do that in a couple of weeks. We've got recruiting to talk about now that the dead period has ended and prospects are taking visits. Then we're going to have media days in a month or so. It's another one of those milestone days in the offseason where it's kind of like when when media days is here, you know the football season is just around the corner. So, of course, we'll cover that for you guys in about a month. And then coming in late July, early August, 
We're going to have fall camp to cover, guys. It's a little bit over a month away, and fall camp will be here. So, yeah, there's just a lot of content leading into this upcoming season that we've got up for you guys over the next couple of weeks. And I just don't know if we're going to be able to fit in any more of these scheme theme episodes. I, I hope maybe I can, but I don't know. But I do have one for you today that I think you're going to enjoy. I think so. I hope so. And this time we are talking offense offensive football. I know it's, it's different, right? Most of our scheme theme episodes, actually, I, I think, well, yeah, all of them to this point, the, the past month plus that we've been doing these scheme theme episodes, they've all been defensive focused because that is where Kirby Smart's teams have really excelled. I wanted you guys to kind of understand why we're so good defensively and what we do. And honestly, I just, I'm an old school defensive guy myself and I just love defensive football. But today, we're going to flip it over to the other side of the ball and give the offensive guys a little bit of love as well. And specifically, what I want to focus on today is Eric Gilbert. I don't know. You might have heard of the guy decent chance if you're a Georgia fan and, oh, I don't know, you've been alive the past couple of weeks, but I want to focus on Eric Gilbert and his potential impact on this 2021 Georgia offense. I know that this is a couple of weeks after news of his transfer hit. It's a little bit late. I get it, but we've had a few other headlines to cover between now and then, and I also just wanted to make sure I did this right and put together an awesome episode for you. I tried to get this done actually yesterday, but I had some things come up in my personal life. Nothing crazy. Just had some things I had to do, had to take care of. And so I had to push it back an extra day. So I apologize for not getting out to you on Monday evening like we normally do during the offseason. But uh, better late than never, right? Like We'll go with that. And, and I want to start this episode by taking you back to our emergency Eric Gilbert transfer podcast a couple of weeks ago, which so far is our most listened to episode of the entire offseason, which... It's not really all that surprising because, I don't know, kind of big news, right? And in that episode, if you remember back, and if you didn't hear it, what I said in that episode, I said many things, but one of the things that I said was that Eric Gilbert is a, quote, game changer. That's what I said. I called him a game changer. And we briefly touched on why I think that's the case, but I did not. In that one episode where we had so many different aspects of that transfer to cover, and we also talked about Darian Kendrick's transfer, I didn't really get to go anywhere close to as in-depth as I would like to on exactly why I think Eric Gilbert is such a game changer for this 2021 Georgia football team. So today, I want to start that process of going into more detail. You guys know I love my details, right? On exactly why I think he is a game changer for our offense. And I want to start with just a little exercise for you guys. So let me ask you this. When you think of the best offenses in college football each of the past two seasons, which two offenses come to mind? Think about that for a second. I'm sure there's a couple different ways you can go, but who are your answers? Think about that for a second. For me, it's obvious. I don't even really need to think about it it's pretty clear to me. In 2019, it was absolutely the LSU Tigers. Absolutely. They were the number one offense in the country in 2019 and statistically the best offense in SEC history. The best offense in SEC history statistically. So really, that one's not hard for me. They averaged 568 yards a game, 7.89 yards per play. The only offense is better in the last 12 seasons in yards per play, which I think is far more accurate of a gauge of how good your offense, how productive your offense is 
than total yards because some teams just run a ton of plays with their tempo so they rack up more yards but from play to play they're not necessarily as efficient so I think it's a great combination of productivity explosiveness efficiency all those kind of things so yards per play the only offense is better in the last 12 seasons in college football and yards per play were the Oklahoma offenses the 2017 Oklahoma offense that averaged and just an unbelievable an ungodly 8.29 yards per play and that was the offense with Baker Mayfield right the offense that we had to play in in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena that offense right that was as good of an offense as I've seen in a long time and then the 2018 Oklahoma offense with Kyler Murray and then the 2019 Oklahoma offense with Jalen Hurts Lincoln Riley is a mad scientist offensively. He really is. He's crazy. I've, I've seen a couple of his his coaching clinics and some of the things that they do. It's just, man, they're hard to stop. They're really hard to stop. But outside of those Oklahoma offenses, 2017, 18, and 19, the LSU offense has been the best offense in the country in the last 12 seasons, right? So as good as any offense out there not named Oklahoma, right? So that's pretty obvious. Then last year, I think it's clear, it was Alabama, right? So it was LSU in 2019, Alabama in 2020. And yeah, I know that technically, if you look at the stats, Alabama did not finish number one in total offense last year. They finished fourth with 542 yards a game. But going back to yards per play, remember, I'm a yards per play guy. They were second in yards per play nationally at 7.81. And they did it for more than half the season without their second best wide receiver. Remember, guys, it was against Mississippi State about halfway through that season that Jalen Waddle went down. And yeah, I guess he kind of came back in the national championship game, but I mean, he was barely, God, he had to come off the play, off the field like every other play because he could barely move. I mean, kudos to him for gutting it out. But he basically, for all intents and purposes, did not play the rest of the season. So they did it without him. They were still as productive and really didn't miss much of a beat. And they did in the SEC. They had to play Georgia. They had to play Florida. They had to play Texas A&M. Then they had to the college World playoff and they had to play Ohio State, right? They had to play a really good Notre Dame defense. So they did against much better competition than some of the teams that finished ahead of them, like Kent State playing in the MAC or UCF playing in the American Conference. So if you're asking me to pick one offense to go win a game for me last year, give me Bama. That's pretty clear to me. And what else did both of those offenses, the LSU offense in 19, the Bama offense last season, what else do they have in common? Well, not only were they just more productive from an efficiency standpoint, from a total yard standpoint, than just about anyone in America, they were also among the most explosive teams in the country within their respective seasons. LSU led the country last year, or 2019, I should say, with 113 plays of 20-plus yards. 113 plays of 20-plus yards. That's just ridiculous. Guys, we haven't had that many plays of 20-plus yards in the past two seasons combined. Take 2019 and 2020. Yeah, I know 2020 was a shortened year, but still take those two years combined. We only have 111 plays of 20 plus yards in those two years combined. LSU did 113 in one year in 2019. In that same year, they were also second in plays of 30 plus yards, fourth and 40 plus yards, and third and 50 plus yards. They actually had 17 plays, LSU did 19, 17 plays of 50 plus yards. Guys, we've had eight total plays of 50 plus yards in the last two seasons combined. More than doubled us up, more than doubled us up there in plays of 52 yards. That's crazy. And then like LSU does 19, the 2020 Bama team, they led the country with 87 plays of 20 plus yards in two fewer games, mind you. And also again, without one of their best 
two most explosive weapons for half the season. They were fifth in plays of 30-plus yards, fourth in 40-plus and 50-plus yards, and second in plays of 60-plus yards. That's been one of the huge differences between our offense the past two seasons and the two offenses that won the national title in each of the last two years. That's one of the huge differences, maybe the biggest difference. They are quite simply just scoring quicker on shorter drives by hitting explosive play after explosive play. They are moving the football in chunks, while we far more frequently have been relying on moving down the field more methodically on 8-play, 10-play, 12-play drives to score. And that's just too difficult to do against the best teams. You can't count on things going right for that many plays on a consistent basis. Sure, can you put together a 10, 12 play touchdown drive here or there? Absolutely, it can happen. But are you going to do that as consistently as teams like Alabama and LSU are hitting these explosive plays? There's just too many opportunities for things to go wrong when you're having to move down the field that methodically using that many plays. I mean, think about our game with Alabama last season. We, yeah, sure, we had the one long touchdown pass to James Cook, and it was an 82-yard touchdown pass in the first half. But outside of that, we had to grind to score. I mean, we had Well, in the first half, we didn't score in the second half. We had to grind to score. We averaged eight plays per scoring drive in that game against Alabama, while Bama only averaged 5.5 plays per scoring drive in that game. If you take out that last drive, which I do because it doesn't matter. It's a garbage drive. They're just trying to ice the game. Yeah, they end up scoring a touchdown, but they weren't really trying to necessarily. They weren't trying to hit big plays in that drive. They were just trying to eat clock. And that's what you've got to be able to do. You've got to be explosive. Guys, I'm a firm believer in this. I'm a convert. You've got to be explosive if you want to win the whole thing. If we want to win the whole thing in 2021, we've got to find a way to be more explosive. So what I'm saying here, I guess, is that if you are looking for two offenses to emulate going into the 2021 season, if you want to win a national title, which of course we do going into this season, you literally could not find two better, more productive, and more explosive offenses than the 2019 LSU offense and the 2020 Alabama offense. You cannot find two better offenses to emulate than those two offenses. And look, yes, I know that a lot of Georgia fans are very sensitive to the Bama East joke. This idea that Georgia and Kirby Smart, we're just trying to copy what Alabama has done. And I've never really quite understood why people get like up in arms about that, why people get frustrated, why it gets them all up in their feelings when people try to say, oh yeah, Georgia's trying to be Bama East. Like, I don't know what's wrong with being the best, right? And Alabama's been, generally speaking, the best for a while now. So what's wrong with trying to be like the best? And guys, football is a copycat game. Saban and Bama did not invent RPOs, but they saw that teams were beating them with RPOs and got tired of it and copied it themselves from teams like Oklahoma and Clemson and Ohio State after they lost some games to those teams. I mean, hell, the 2019 LSU offense was essentially the New Orleans Saints offense. That's what it was. Joe Brady didn't invent those ideas for all the credit he got. He just basically implemented them at the college level with some insanely talented players. So let Bama fans call us copycats. Who cares? They were copycats before we were copycats. I just want to win. I I want a national title. I want a national title probably more than anything in my life. And to get a national title in the modern era of college football, 
You have to have offenses like LSU in 2019 or Alabama last year. So what does this all have to do with Eric Gilbert? Well, guys, I think he could be the key to us transforming our offense to be a cross between the 2019 LSU offense and the 2020 Alabama offense with similar production and potentially, who knows, similar ultimate team results, which is really what we're all going after, right? And that's what I want to focus on today, specifically how Eric Gilbert's presence on our roster can help us operate like the 2019 LSU offense. And then next week, since I'm saying like we have the potential now with Gilbert on the roster to be like a cross between the LSU offense of 19, the Bama offense of 20, we'll cover the LSU offense today and how we can be like them and do some of the things that they did with so much success. And then next week, I will detail how Gilbert will give us the ability to do a lot of the things Alabama did last year offensively with so much success. So I promise we will circle back to that, talking about how we can operate in a very similar fashion to to how LSU did in 2019. But before we get to that, we need to lay some groundwork by discussing exactly what position I expect Eric Gilbert to play for Georgia this year and where I expect him to be a line. Because like, you can say that he's an X receiver or a Z receiver or whatever, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a line in the same spot from play to play, from down to down. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We know he's going to play wide receiver. We know that. That's easy. Eric Gilbert himself made that clear in the interview that he gave to 247 Sports the day he announced his transfer. And that really shouldn't be a surprise. I don't think so. Because really, going back to his high school days and he was being recruited, he made it pretty clear that's what he wanted to play. Now, some other programs like Georgia, we were recruiting him as a tight end. That's one of the reasons we didn't get him coming out of high school is that we were pretty adamant. Like, hey, we, we see you as a tight end. And sure, we can flex you out and do some of those things. But you're going to play tight and you're going to play inline at least some of the time. And he didn't really want to do that. So went to LSU where, yeah, he played in line every now and then, but he was basically operating as a wide receiver. So it's been no secret for a while now. This guy has his eyes set on wide receiver. And now, I mean, maybe I I wish he would say it tight end, but I get it. He doesn't like to align in line. He doesn't like to block the big defensive linemen. And in the NFL, the simple fact is the best wide receivers get paid more than the best tight ends. And, And you're crazy if you don't think that is a major motivating factor but behind his desire to play wide receiver. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I get that. Absolutely, I understand that. And I, honestly, I'm cool with it from a football standpoint too. I think he maybe he's a better fit as a tight end, but 
I'm totally fine with him playing wide receiver. With the way the game has changed and the way offenses have evolved over the past decade or so, especially the last five years, I mean, you guys know, you watch football like I do. Tight ends don't just play tight end anymore. Wide receivers don't necessarily just have to play wide receiver. The lines have increasingly been blurred between those two positions because of big physical guys who look like traditional tight ends, but can move like wide receivers like, oh, I don't know, Eric Gilbert. And I think he can get the same type of matchup advantages, whether he's labeled as a tight end or labeled as a wide receiver. I don't think it really matters what the label is. It's really just semantics at this point because we can move him all over the field, do different things with him. He can he can line up out wide at X, he can line up in the slot, he can line up as an H-back from, from time to time. And, and on top of that, we really just don't need him at tight end. We already have at least two guys that can create the type of matchup issues that Gilbert would create from that position. Everyone talks about Darnell Washington, and don't get me wrong, guys, I'm extremely excited about the season he could potentially have and the impact he could potentially make this season. But I've told you before, and I'm going to tell you again, don't sleep on Brock Bowers, the tight end from Napa, California. Don't sleep on him. I know he wasn't technically a five-star. He's a top 100 guy. Didn't play his senior year because he's out in California, and they lost their minds and didn't play high school football last year. But don't sleep on him. He isn't as big as Gilbert, so he doesn't create exactly the same type of issues for defenses, but he's faster, he's more sudden, and he's a more fluid athlete. I will stand by that. I know Eric Gilbert's getting so much love right now for the kind of athlete he is at his size, and he deserves that. He's a great athlete at his size. But Brock Bowers, guys, I mean, the numbers are out there. He's faster. You watch him play. He's more of a sudden athlete. He's more of a fluid athlete. I mean, he basically played running back for his high school. I mean, he played running back slash tight end for them. And he's a much more explosive athlete than Eric Gilbert is. I mean, guys, as a sophomore in high school, Brock Bowers was laser timed at a 4-5-40. As a sophomore, two years ago in high school, same year, was, was measured with a 40-inch vertical jump. Again, as a sophomore in high school. So he's a better athlete in terms of speed, explosiveness, that kind of thing. Now, while he, he, and he isn't as big as Gilbert, but while he isn't as big as Gilbert, he's a much more willing blocker. Uh, so I'm very excited about Brock Bowers. And I, I'm telling you, just don't sleep on the guy. Do not sleep on him. We need, and look, with our offense, we do. We need two playmaking hybrid tight ends for those 12 personnel sets and formations. And, and the present, presence of Washington and Bowers on the roster what that does is, it, I mean, it makes Gilbert a luxury at tight end. It, we don't have to play him at tight end. It gives us the ability to say, yeah, sure, Eric Gilbert. If you like, We'd love to have you on your roster you're a freakish athlete. So if you want to play wide receiver, that's fine. That's cool with us because we got two guys, Washington Bowers, that we believe in. And we've got some, a couple other guys behind them, like Fitzpatrick, some of those kind of guys who don't pose this exact same kind of matchup issues. But you know they can fill in as well. So all right, he's going to play wide receiver. We know that. But what wide receiver position? Is he going to play the X, the Z, the slot? And and before I answer that question, I just want to make sure to explain what I mean by X, Z, and slot. You've heard me use those terms before, especially when we talk about George Pickens and his injury when he went down and talking about how he played the X. Like, now who's going to play the X? So I just want to make sure that everyone knows what I'm talking about when I throw out those letters, I guess those receiver positions. And look, guys. Now, this is a very, this is very much a gross simplification. And different coaches and different schemes have different preferences for what they want each position. So, this is this is a very general look at it. But generally speaking, in a traditional three wide receiver set, 
you have the X position, who, which is where you usually put your best wide receiver. The X position, the X receivers, ideally is kind of like the total package guy. He's big, tall, fast, got the leaping ability. He's like your top shelf alpha wide receiver. That's the X, okay? And that X receiver oftentimes is a vertical threat or poses a vertical threat because he's got that speed combined with his outside alignment, which is outside the hashes. It makes it difficult for safeties to provide help over the top, especially if you're talking about middle of the field close looks or, or single high looks where you got one safe in the middle of the field. It's tough to get over the top on those guys. And hopefully that X position receiver, the X receiver is big enough, strong enough to get off press coverage at the line of scrimmage. That's one way you can slow him down to, to allow the safety time to get over the top to help provide some, some help is to press him. But if he's big enough and strong enough and good enough, he can get off those presses. Traditionally, the X receivers aligned opposite the tight end. Back when I was in school, a long time ago now, this receiver, like we didn't call it X back then. I mean, we called it the split end. That's It's the same thing. So if you're used to that, the X is what used to be called the split end. And so we're talking about guys like George Pickens was for us before the injury. Go back years, like when I was growing up, Brandy Moss was a, was a classical X. Uh, Julio Jones with the Falcons has been X. Calvin Johnson, those are X receivers. It's typically the guy that can dictate coverage, that can force defenses to roll coverage his way. And that's why I said, like, when Pickens went down, we didn't have to have someone that basically operated the exact same way that George Pickens did and did exactly the things he did and was was a, was a threat the way Pickens was with his ability to go up and just snag the ball out of the air. But we need to find someone who could dictate coverage in their own way because that's what Pickens did. Teams had to to roll their coverage towards him because of his playmaking ability. And we needed someone to step up and do that. It didn't have to be exactly like George, but we needed someone to step up and do that. So that's the X position. The Z receiver, or back in the day, we used to call this the flanker, is uh, traditionally not necessarily as big as your X receiver. They're off the line of scrimmage that so doesn't really create the natural press opportunities for the defense. So if they're not pressed as much, it kind of just makes sense, right? They don't need to be as big or physical so they're not fighting off that press coverage as often. They are still lined outside, just like the X receiver, just on the opposite side. So they still are, are able to serve as a vertical threat, but they're aligned typically on the same side as, as the tight end. Now, again, like I, now in this age of football, you motion guys, you move things, people around, you do different things with them. But we're, again, we're talking very generally here. Uh, the, the Z receivers usually put in motion a little bit more often, at least traditionally, which means they can operate out of the slot at times. The reason they're put in motion more often is because they're offline scrimmage, right? They're offline scrimmage so they can move back and forth. Uh, and, and I guess the Z receiver, I guess what, the way I would describe it is kind of a cross between the X and the slot wide receiver. And just to give you some comparison here, like who were some like prominent Z receivers of years past? Think like Deshaun Watson, or Deshaun Jackson, not Watson, Deshaun Jackson, the NFL, had a lot of success for a long time. I think he's still playing, right? But he was pretty much a Z receiver. Reggie Wayne was a Z receiver early in his career for a large part of his career, especially when Marvin, Marvin Harrison was there with the Colts. Calvin Ridley has been a Z with the Falcons well, with Julio Jones there. Now he might move to X now with, with Julio out. We'll see what happens there. So that's kind of the Z. And then the slot wide receiver, which has become much more of a premier position over the past five or 10 years. I think you guys have a better idea what the slot is, right? Uh, they, the slot used to be where you just stuck your smaller, lesser, less talented wide receiver. But that's kind of changed uh, along with the modern offensive evolution. Now, like the Z, the slot receivers typically, almost always, aligned off the line of scrimmage. And it's still they're still often smaller than the X receiver or the Z receiver because they don't need to be as big. 
based on what they're asked to do. Remember, they're offline scrimmage, so like the Z, they're much more difficult to press. It's also typically one of the reasons, like if you think about like your traditional slot receivers, you're probably picturing like these smaller, shorter, shiftier guys, right? And there's a reason for that. Typically, you put your those kind of players in the slot because you want to have guys at that position who have elite short area quickness or elite twitchiness. And usually it's guys that are a little shorter that have that elite short area twitchiness, right? Because if you think about this, like slot defenders, the nickelback, we talked about this before with one of our earlier episodes, scheme theme episodes, I think, we were talking about some of the defensive stuff with the with the nickel position, with the uh, with the star position. But slot defenders, the nickelback, or our star, our star position, they don't have the boundary to serve as a 12th defender. So the slot wide receiver has a two-way go. They can operate in, they can operate out based on the leverage of that slot defender, which is why short area quickness is so important for their, for those players. It allows them to take advantage of that space. You see them run those option routes, those whip routes, whatever you want to call them, there's different names for them, all the same thing. Uh, and now I will say like the slot wide receiver for a long time was more of like a possession type guy, an underneath receiver. But over the past couple of years, they have become more of a of a vertical threat because, I mean, traditionally, yeah, they're more of a horizontal than a vertical threat, but the slot fade has really become a popular play over the past year or so. I mean, LSU, speaking of LSU earlier, they, I mean, they ran that play to just devastate teams. They, they would put Jamar Chase or Jefferson in the slot there and just run a slot fade with those guys. And I mean, slot defenders, just those nickelbacks just couldn't stop it. They could not stop it, especially when you got Joe Burrow just dropping dimes out there. So if, if you talk about slot receivers, Traditionally, think guys like Julian Edelman, Kadarius Tony last year for Florida, uh, Miko Hardman to a degree here in Athens. Oh, he moved around, did some different things for us. Uh, Hunter Renfro at Clemson and Humphreys at Clemson, like those kind of guys. And, and tight ends also get flexed down the slot quite as quite a bit as well. So you can kind of put them there at times, depending on what kind of tight end you're talking about. And that now brings us to Eric Gilbert. Which one of those spots is he going to spend the majority of his time at? And it's a tough question to answer. I, I'm I'm really not honestly sure he's a protocol fit for any of those three wide receiver positions. He's just a different kind of athlete. He, he's Yeah, he's fast for a big jumbo wide receiver, but he's not your typical vertical threat at the X. He's a high 4-6, low 4-7 guy. He's not, he, he's not a, he's, if he's gonna play fast, if he's gonna play wide receiver, he's not a fast wide receiver. He's a fast jumbo wide receiver. It's the fact that he is as fast as he is and moves as well as he does in a frame that big, you know, 245, 250 pounds. That's what makes him a unicorn. Now, maybe if he drops some weight by the time the season rolls around, gets down to 230, 235, maybe it'll be even faster than that. We'll see, but we just haven't seen him at that weight. We really haven't. But that's what makes him special. It's the fact that he's that big, that physical, and can move like he does. And when you have a unique athlete like that, I think you move him around to create matchups all over the field. And I talked about this with Pickens pre-injury. One area that I felt he needed to continue to grow was in mastering more than just the X position, which he was doing you know, as the season wore on last year because I felt that was important because that would enable Todd Munkin as offensive coordinator to create more favorable matchups for him and make him tougher to defend because defenses just wouldn't know where he was going to line up from one play to the next. That ability, I've said this a couple of times, I'll say it again, that ability is one of the things that helped Devontae Smith win the Heisman Trophy last season. And that's something that I imagine Todd Monk and our defensive, our offensive staff have designs on with Gilbert this season. You know, with Pickens out and there being at least somewhat of a vacancy at the X, Burton was working there a little bit before he got injured himself, but I mean, that position's open. 
Uh, so I, with that being the case, I see Gilbert's probably starting out there as his quote unquote position, but I, I, I just hesitate to say that he's going to have any like specific position because I think he has the ability to do some different things, move over the, all over the field and create matchups. And I think he's going to get a lot of work in the slot as well. We would be crazy not to work with him in the slot with some of the things that he can give us in the RPO game, which I will go into more detail with next week when I lay out how he can help us have success with a lot of the same things Alabama has had success with the past few years in offense. And you talk about Gilbert in the slot, I mean, he's used to playing that position. According to Pro Football Focus, he lined up in the slot more than he did anywhere else on the field for LSU last season. 46% of the snaps that he was on the field, he was lined up in the slot. So he's got experience playing that position. The one thing that does concern me about him playing multiple positions is just the fact that he wasn't here for spring. He's new to the program. It's not the same offense. I'm sure there's some similarities, but there, there are, but it's not the same offense. It's not the same terminology. So he's going to have to get here this summer, which he's already here. He's been on campus for a couple of weeks, or I guess for a week or two now, and he's going to have to learn those positions. And it's going to be tough to honestly master one position. So to, so to expect him to be able to master more than one position in that short of a time frame, that's asking a lot. So what I would imagine we do is like we kind of scale down the playbook for him and really work with him, getting him to master a certain number of plays and certain number of looks from different formation sets, that kind of thing. I imagine that's how we're going to start with him, kind of ease him into it. And then as the season gets here and he gets more comfortable in the system, we can add more and more and more to his plate. I imagine that's what we'll do, but I think he's going to move over the field. I think that's what we need to do with him. But let's circle back to the 2019 LSU offense and how Eric Gilbert's very unique skill set can allow us to operate in a very similar fashion to that LSU offense back in 19. And look, guys, I want to make it clear. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that we are going to be a carbon copy of the 2019 LSU Tiger offense. I'm not saying that's what we're going to be this season. And of course, I'm not saying that we're going to be as productive as they were. Again, that was the most productive offense statistically in SEC history, and they won a national title. We all love JT Daniels, love the guy, very excited about him, but he hasn't come close to showing us, in reality, I mean, he hasn't, guys, he hasn't come close to showing us he's a Joe Burrow caliber quarterback yet. Now, he's better than the guys that we've had, so we're all excited, but has he shown us he's Joe Burrow yet? No, no, of course not. We have some really exciting young talent at wide receiver, some guys that I really believe in, right? Guys like Jermaine Burton, Arian Smith, Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint. I believe in these guys, but no one on that roster at wide receiver has come close to proving they are Jamar Chase, like a Jamar Chase type guy, or even a Justin Jefferson type wide receiver, or even, heck, a Terrace Marshall level wide receiver yet. I think a couple of our guys have chances to be that good as early as this season, and I'm hoping that's the case, but we don't know that for sure, and they haven't done it yet. So no, I'm not saying We're going to produce the best offense in SEC history this season. But what I am saying is that with Eric Gilbert now on the roster, we have all the pieces we need to do what really made LSU so tough to defend in 2019. And that is basically the ability to run your entire offense without ever having to sub. Guys, that was the key for the Tigers in 2019. That was it. That was the key for them. 
So often when you see these like super explosive, high-flying offenses, these aerial attacks, people just get mesmerized by them and think they're also incredibly complex and so intricate. They have to be to put up that many points, right? Why can't people stop them? They're just so hard. They're so difficult to stop because there's so much going on. Well, that really couldn't be further from the truth. That LSU team, they ran a handful of concepts and they ran them really well. Their go-to pass concept was something called doubles, where um, and that's a, that's a concept where the two outside wide receivers they run the same route. It's that's why you call it doubles, right? Same route on the outside. So it's and it's usually a, a go route or a stutter and go like a double move route there with, with those outside receivers. And you got the tight end running a shallow cross, and then the slot wide receiver running a middle read route. And what I mean by middle read route is he's reading the safety alignment. If it's middle of the field open, which means like two high safeties, like a like a cover two shell. If the middle of the field is open, he runs a post into that middle of the field. If it's middle of the field closed with a single high safety just sitting there in the middle of the field, that slot receiver is going to flatten his route and run a dig or an in route. And then what the quarterback would do, Joe Burrow would just read the safeties. If it was middle of the field closed with one single high safety, he would almost always throw it to one of the outside wide receivers on that vertical route because it was just harder for the safety to get over the top there. If it was middle field open, take away those outside routes, what he would do is read the middle underneath the fender, like the linebacker, whoever might end up being in that play, and play a little high-low. If the linebacker is playing with low leverage, he'll throw it to that dig route coming over the, over the top. If he's playing underneath the dig route, he'll play it to the shallow, he'll throw the ball to the shallow cross tight end coming across the middle there. Pretty simple stuff, guys. Pretty simple stuff. Hardly revolutionary. So they ran that play a lot. That was kind of their go-to play. But and they also like they they ran other a couple other concepts. They ran a lot of slot fades as I mentioned earlier. They ran four verticals a lot, which guys, that play is as old as the forward pass. That's nothing new. And they ran spear, which has become very in vogue, very popular over the years. Spears basically where you on you got double post routes on one side to kind of clear out that side and you come across on the other side with a deep over from like the opposite hash. Um, and that's that guy that's coming over on the deep over, that's the spear player. So they really weren't, and they ran some other concepts too, but those are their basic, the, the primary concepts they were running. So they really weren't as exotic as many people think they weren't. They weren't really running plays that were different than what other teams are running. In fact, it's the opposite. What made them so great to watch is like it was just beautiful in its simplicity, which is honestly the case for most of these really high-powered spread offenses. They don't, like contrary to popular belief, they don't put more on the quarterback. They take the load off the quarterback as much as they can and make him think less. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So what made LSU so dynamic in 2019? It was not the plays themselves that they were running. It was the guiding principles of their offense, which allowed them to always be in the right play because they could run their entire offense with the same five skill players. On any, on every single snap, guys, the offense has five skill players. And I classify a tight end as a skill player, especially nowadays. You've got 
between your wide receivers, tight ends, and running backs, you have five skill players on the field, right? Then you have a quarterback, and then you have five offensive linemen. You got center, two guards, and two tackles, right? So you got five skill players that you're working. I guess you can call a quarterback a skill player if you want to say six, but I'm talking about skill players a quarterback can distribute the ball to, right? And if you're talking about the principles that made this offense so successful and so tough to handle back in 2019, I'll start with this. Principle number one was use hybrid skill players. Find them, deploy them. And they had hybrid skill players like Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And you guys have heard me talk about hybrid players probably too much this offseason. But this has been my thing, because I'm telling you, this is the new age of college football. Hybrid skill players. So they had players like Clyde Edwards-Alaire, Thaddeus Moss at tight end that could serve multiple roles within their offense. Moss, yeah, tight end. He's a tight end. He could could play in line. Sure, block for him. And then on the very next play, he could flex out to the slot. And the next play, he could flex out out wide as like the number one receiver. Clyde Edwards-Alaire could gash you on the ground for 10 to 15 yards one play. And then he's lined up outside as the number one wide receiver the next play. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about hybrid skill players. That's principle number one. Principle number two is then on top of the difficulty posed by hybrid skill players and the matchup problems they can pose just by the fact that they can do different things, they can fill different roles, you throw principle number two at them, which is never sub. They never had to sub to run whatever play it was that they wanted or needed to run with those hybrid skill players. And then we'll throw in a bonus principle here. The third principle that offense is do it with tempo. Because if you never sub but you're still going slow, well, the defense can get those guys in the field and they can match up based off down and distance and whatever specialized package they want to run, right? But if you never have to sub because you have hybrid skill players that can fill multiple roles and you do it with tempo, then the defense can never sub. They can never get specialized packages on the field and that makes you almost impossible to stop. Unless you just mess up and you make a bad read in the middle of the play or you throw an inaccurate ball or you fumble, they just, like, how do you stop it? How do you stop it? I don't know if there's an answer right now. I'm still trying to figure that out. And a lot of coaches, a lot of demons coaches around college football are trying to figure that out. So, I mean, let's just put it this way. If, let's say if LSU was running the ball with success and the defense tried to counter with more run-stopping looks and, and run-stopping personnel and we'll get their heavy personnel on the field defensively, well, LSU would just throw the ball and get chunk, chunks of yards off that and then vice versa. And as I just said a second ago, even more than that, Defenses couldn't sub, even if they wanted to, because LSU never huddled. They operated with tempo and could send, I don't know, like five guys out into routes on one play and then come right back the very next play 15 seconds later and run counter power down your throat. They go from 12 personnel looks and sets to empty from play to play. And what defenses usually do to counter spread offenses like that is they develop specialized packages, as I said, that they use in just specific situations. But you can't get those specialized packages on the field when an offense like LSU operates with the tempo they do. So as a defensive coordinator, you basically have to pick one defensive package and stick with it each series. Now, you can change it from series to series, but it's almost impossible to change it within series because you can't get those packages on the field in time for the ball snap. And with those hybrid skill players that LSU had, like they had a formational answer for whatever package the defense decided to throw out there from series to series. That is what made them so difficult to stop. Not the plays they ran, it's the way they operated their offense with those principles. And that is exactly what Eric Gilbert will allow us to do this season with his presence on our offense. And I think with guys like Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers, even without Eric Gilbert, we were already gonna be able to do a lot of that 
But Gilbert just puts it over the top for us with these hybrid skill players. And honestly, I know this might sound crazy, but I believe this. I think we have a chance to be even more tough to handle than LSU because we have not one, but two hybrid tight ends. So we can operate out of 12 personnel and go from 12 to empty between any two given plays in a way that even LSU couldn't do. Yeah, they had a hybrid tight end in Thaddeus Moss, but we've got Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers, right? And you throw Eric Gilbert in on top of that. I mean, that's just like an embarrassment of riches. I mean, just picture this, right? Let me just throw some hypotheticals out there to you. Just picture this for a second. Let's say we open a drive with, with 12 personnel. You got five skill players, right? And I, I think I've mentioned this before, but we're doing a scheme theme episode. For some people who might not have heard me go over this before and don't know exactly what I'm talking about when I say like 11 personnel or 10 personnel or 12 personnel, as I said earlier, there's five skill players, right? So those two numbers, you add them together and that gives you, the, the first number is the number of running backs you have. So if it's 12 personnel, we have one running back, right? That's the first number. The second number is how many tight ends you have on the field. So in 12 personnel, we have one running back, two tight ends, right? Now now we got to do some simple math to figure out how many receivers we have on the field. So you add those two numbers together, one running back, two tight ends. That equals three skill players. I told you guys, you have five skill players on the field outside the quarterback on any given snap. So if we have one tight end, or I'm sorry, one running back, two tight ends, that's three skill players. So you subtract three from five, that means you have two wide receivers out there on the field in 12 personnel. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. If it's 10 personnel, it means you have one running back, zero tight ends, four wide receivers. If it's 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. If you have like old school, back when I was growing up, you had like you know, the kind of power eye offense, right? Where you've got two running backs and one tight end, that's 21 personnel. Two running backs, one tight end, two wide receivers. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about those personnel numbers. That's what that means. So, Let's just picture this. We open a drive with 12 personnel, one running back, two tight ends. We've got five skill players, right? So let's say just in this specific hypothetical, we got James Cook as our running back. He's the guy that I think we need to make really, really great use of out of this year. We cannot waste this guy's ability. Talk about hybrid players. James Cook might be as hybrid of players we have offensively. And there are a lot of things that he can do in conjunction with guys like Eric Gilbert and Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington that can really, really just add another layer to making life difficult for defenses this year. But let's say James Cook's at running back, right? And then tight end, you got Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers. And let's just say in this specific this specific hypothetical, you got Eric Gilbert out the X and Jermaine Burton out the Z. Those are your two wide receivers. So let's say in the first play of the drive, we got James Cook in the backfield next to Daniels in a shotgun look. Gilbert's at X, Burton's at Z, Bowers is lined up initially as an H-back, and you've got... Um, Washington with his hand in the dirt in line, right? The defense sees this, and so they've got their, they started the drive with their base defense of personnel, their heavy, like run stopping defense of personnel. And so what we do is we motion Bowers out to the slot, and that effectively puts us in 11 personnel, right? Because I mean, even though he's technically labeled as a tight end, if he's out there in the slot, he's basically operating as a receiver, essentially. So it's kind of like you're going from one set to another set, and it's the same personnel, but it, the set's different, the formation's different. And so we do that with a guy, with a guy like Bowers, who's hybrid, and has the ability to do that, and you hit him for 15 yards. He's matched with a linebacker. Linebacker's not gonna be able to stay with him consistently. Then we hurry to the line, go with tempo, just like LSU did. And then we line up on the next play in a two-by-two two formation. Now with both Bowers and Washington flexed out, right? Now we have no inline tight end. So it's basically operating like 10 personnel. So you went from what was operating, like you open the drive with 12 personnel, then you go basically motion out to 11. And then you, the next play, you come back with tempo. And now you're going to what's essentially 10 personnel. And so the defense sees that. So they're trying to sub their nickel package in to get an extra DB on the field. 
And let's say that even if we're not going with crazy tempo, and let's just say for argument's sake, they can get that extra DB on the field. They can sub the package in. Again, ideally, we're going to go with tempo, so they can't do that. But let's just say we're not. Even if they get the extra DB on the field, well, that extra DB is going to be lined up on, down, on Darnell Washington. That's a major matchup issue for them. And then the next play with the defense still a nickel, well, now we bring both Washington and Bowers back in line and motion Gilbert into a reduced split where he can now enter as a blocker himself in the box and you run down their throat against a defense that's got a package out there designed to stop the pass. And, and so when you have a situation like that, you can effectively have like 13 personnel. That's essentially what it is. It's a set, a formation. If you mo- if you have Gilbert and Bowers in line as a two tight end look, and then you motion Gilbert into like a reduced split where he's basically acting like an extra tight end, it's essentially 13 personnel. So we've gone from 12 to 11 to 10 to 13, and then they try to get their heavy package back on the field. But in the next play, what you do is you motion James Cook out, and now you go empty. Now you're an empty. Try and stop it. Try and stop that. You just can't. As long as we don't make the mistakes, when you have personnel like that with guys like Eric Gilbert and the other guys that we've got, I, I just don't know. LSU, I mean, it showed, they showed it to us in 2019. I don't know how you stop that. Or imagine this. Let's go another hypothetical here. Let's say we open with 11 personnel. This time we've got Kenny McIntosh or Kendall Milton as running back. I think both those guys, they might not be James Cook level hybrid type players. I think they're a little stronger. They're stronger runners than Cook and maybe not quite as good as patch catchers, but they can still catch the ball in the backfield themselves. We can line them about why we're done with both those guys. They can do that. So, so we've got Kenny McIntosh and or Kendall Milton in the backfield, right? So you've got Washington tight end. This time, you don't have like your traditional two tight ends. You don't have Bowers in the game. You've got Gilbert at X, and then you got either, let's say, Jermaine Burton or Arian Smith at Z, and then Kiaris Jackson or Arian Smith, insert who you want, at the slot. Those are your five skill personnel players, right? So with that personnel, we could go from what is basically 12 personnel with Gilbert at, as like an H-back to what amounts to 11 personnel with Gilbert now on the slot or with him back at X, to a formation that's basically 10 personnel if we take Washington and Gilbert and flex them both out, or we can go with an empty formation all in the same drive without ever having to sub, keeping the same personnel on the field, the same players on the field without ever having to bring a new guy on the field, running guy off the field, and you can change to all those different sets, all those different formations, and basically operate as like different personnel packages all with the same players. So what does the defense do? How do you possibly defend that? As a defense coordinator, you got to make choices. Do you go with heavy personnel to stop the run? Because, I mean, look, guys, that's what teams do. Like, they just assume that we're going to run the ball down their throats. That's They know that's what we want to do. They know we like to run the ball. They know we have these great offensive linemen. We've got great running backs. They know what we're built to do from an identity standpoint. So they go with the heavy personnel to stop the run? Well, if they do, now in the past, you could do that. You could get away with that last year. You could, get a, you could definitely get away with it in 2019. But now with Eric Gilbert, I don't know. I don't know. Because if you do that, it creates major matchup issues for the defense. They've got they've got to get a safety in the box to stop the run. They've got to the way we're able to run the ball with our offensive line and our running backs. So if you do that, I mean, are you gonna cover, are you sat are you okay with covering Arian Smith in the slot with a linebacker? <laughs> Good night. That, that ain't gonna work, guys. Good night. Are you gonna cover Eric Gilbert one-on-one outside with a cornerback? That's not gonna work. That's easy pitch and catch with his size since a cornerback. Are you going to cover Darnell Washington with a linebacker one-on-one? What linebacker's doing that? The guy's seven foot nine. I mean, Jesus Christ, who's doing that? It's not going to happen. Are you going to cover our best route runner and Jermaine Burton one-on-one on the backside? Is that what you're going to do? There are literally no right 
answers there. That's what Eric Gilbert can give us along with the other hybrid skill players that we have on offense. And what if they choose door number two? And they say, all right, look, you know what? We know they can run the ball, but if that's what they're going to do, we're going to make them run the ball down our throat and do this eight, nine, 10 play drive. So we're going to come out with a nickel or dime package with extra DBs on the field so they can't throw the ball all over the field like LSU did back in 2019. Well, in that case, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to run some bunch sets or reduce splits to get Eric Gilbert closer to the box so that he can essentially serve as a tight end, even though he isn't technically a tight end. He can still basically do a lot of the same things, even though he's not called a tight end. Again, what I said earlier, the, the line between tight end and receivers increasingly been blurred over the years. So you're going to move him inside and you're going to run the ball down their throat. It's all about flexibility. That's what players like Eric Gilbert give us. They give us the flexibility to create favorable matchups with their ability to do multiple things and serve multiple roles within the same drive. And a lot of the talk that I have heard, I do want to say this, a lot of the talk I have heard surrounding Gilbert and why he's going to be so good for George and why Georgia fans should be so excited since his transfer, it's centered around the idea that he's just, you need, tell me if you've heard this before, right? He's too big for DBs to cover and too fast for linebackers to cover. And yeah, that's true. That's not not true. That is true. But it's just not, it, it's so much more than that, right? That's underselling what Eric Gilbert can do for our 2021 offense. It's the flexibility hybrid players like him and Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers and James Cook and Kenny McIntosh and Kendall Milton. It's the flexibility that guys like that, those hybrid type players give us with our formations and play calling within drives that create such favorable matchups all over the field for all the guys on offense and not just their own individual one-on-one matchups. Eric Gilbert's presence, sure, it will create some really favorable matchups. We, we can use him to create favorable matchups with him to get him the ball, but it's more than just that. We can use his presence on the field with his flexibility and his hybrid ability to create those favorable matchups for other players as well and make it essentially impossible for defense to defend us if we do things right and we execute. Now, obviously, I cannot guarantee that we are going to do all of these things that I have laid out today and operate our offense the way that LSU did with so much success back in 2019. But the ability to do so is there. It's there, guys. And I trust that Todd Munkin, call me crazy, I think Todd Munkin can do his job. Like, I think he's a really good offensive coordinator. I think, I think the country's going to find that out this year. And I trust that he is smart enough to see that and to understand that. I do. And he did some of those things to the, to the degree that he could with the personnel that we had last year. He did. He tried, man. He tried. I mean, think about that long touchdown pass to Cook against Alabama that I mentioned earlier. If you remember back to that play, we opened with like a bunch set on that play with James Cook in, in the backfield next to Stetson Benham. Then we motioned Cook out wide. They sent their inside linebacker, Christian Harris, out there to cover him because he had Cook and man coverage. And so they put Harris out there on an island with James Cook out there uh, near the sideline. And then boom, 82 yards later, touchdown, let's go. So we did it as much as we could last year with what Munkin had to work with. But this year with JT at quarterback and then hybrid skill players like Gilbert in Washington, Bowers, Cook, McIntosh, Milton, all those guys who can allow us to move from set to set, formation to formation, seamlessly within drives, it's there for the taking. It's there for the taking. Gilbert, in my opinion, is the most dangerous of those hybrid threats. I do believe that, but it's not just him. 
but his presence puts us over the top and gives us the ability to do a lot of the things that LSU was able to do with so much success and just devastate defenses all over the country in 2019. So now we have it, guys. We have all the tools with Gilbert's arrival. We have all the tools we could ever ask for to become an absolute nightmare for defenses to, to defend. We just got to do it. We just got to go out there and do it. But all right, guys, that does it for me today here on the Glory UJ podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. I know it's a, a, a week or so late getting it out to you guys, but I really just wanted to put as much time into it as I could to make it as good of an episode as I possibly could. So I hope it worked out. And I hope this helped you understand just why I think Eric Gilbert can be an absolute game changer for our offense. Again, I think that his presence, along with some of the other skill players that we already have that can do different things and serve different roles, I think it can allow us offensively to kind of be a cross between the 2019 LSU offense for the reason I laid out today and then the 2020 Alabama offense for the reasons I will lay out next week on what will probably be our final scheme theme episode of the offseason. And that sucks to say because I do like doing these shows. It's a lot of work. It really is. Put a lot of time in these episodes to make sure that I can kind of lay it out and articulate in a way that's easier for you guys to understand. But I just love talking football. I love the nuts and bolts, the X's and O's. So I really do enjoy doing these episodes and I hope you guys are enjoying them as much as I enjoy putting them out there for you guys. So we got at least one more, at least one more next week. We'll focus on Alabama, specifically Alabama's RPO game and how Eric Gilbert can be a major factor in the RPO game this year to just absolutely destroy defenses. We'll, we'll focus on that next week. But thanks for listening, guys. I really do appreciate it. We'll also have the kickoff of our summer scout enemy series next week i'm really excited about that as well been working on that for a while i've watched i've now gone through and watched every single clemson game from last year yes even the games that were just blowing everybody out which is pretty much every game so i've i've tried to gather as much information as i possibly can and put together a really insightful episode for you guys that'll help you prepare for the uh, the season opener man season opener which will be here and now what about two and a half months? I'm telling you guys, it's right around the corner. We're getting close. We're getting close. But thanks for listening, guys. Curtis will be back with me later on this week. I know we had a bunch of questions from some news that popped over the weekend. We got Demetrius Robertson's transfer announcement. We'll talk about that. We've got some questions on that. We've got a new track coach, guys, and I think it's a home run hire. So we've got some questions on that. We'll break that down. So make sure to check back later in the week. We'll have some fun with that. And I don't know, maybe, just maybe, we will have a Charlie sighting, our first Charlie sighting in a couple of weeks. We might have a Charlie sighting next week. We'll see. We'll see if we can track her down. She's out globe trotting, gallivanting around the country doing, I don't know what she's doing. But she might, just might be able to make an appearance next week. So we have that to look forward to as well. But thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for sticking with me. I really appreciate it. And as always, go dogs.